Widen class. I think it's important to remember that Sarah Winchester was not living out in the middle of nowhere. Their little worlds. There were farms she had neighbors. To widen class. And of course, there were the people in her employ who lived on her land. Well, but one of the neighbors that I am fairly certain she had some contact with was Alfred. Though there will be one segment that will definitely cover some. Now, when you look at the but way that I want to talk more about the were, they weren't touching house itself. The about the west most portion area around of it, her property, and a little bit about well, me. just a <laughs> little bit, maybe a hundred fifty yards around the same area away the same from time. the northeastern corner. But we're going to start with of the Wilson property across the street. And across the street was, and as I Alfred mentioned before, the town and country village. Was a really and it was big. Guy. It was a big chunk that's the, now where Santana Row is, if you're He was local, involved but it with was the California Fruit Shops. Canners Association. And it was low, one-story sort of mission, years. And he had only style. come to and there were, California there tobacco in shop. There 1887. There was, this is the year after I think there was Sarah an arcade, purchased, you know, but that may have come later. It was where you would go to buy uh, tickets to sporting events and stuff. Their there was interests ticket, I think it was were certainly aligned. Like that, or San Jose tickets. Of course, you Sarah had there her was a own sports drying operation. There were a number of very good restaurants, including a Chinese place that had really canning. But the place so it would make that sense that every kid Alfred wanted Wilson to go would be someone she was would Chuck have e. interacted with. How now, Chuck E. Cheese is still around today. Chuck E. Cheese which stands for Charles Entertainment And of course, it could have gone through Lieb. It could have gone through the Secretary. It could have gone through Marion. And they've Any been all over the world. There could have actually been the ones who but I interacted. The first with one him, I was aware of, seems likely, and I'm fairly certain was the first at that one. Level was in the, in the town and country village, directly across have wanted from to deal with the, the Winchester owner. house. Well, actually, the Chuckie's itself was, that was further down. It was actually it more or less across so much from sense. the Bob's Big Boy. And sadly, I haven't been able to find anyone who's holding stuff coming from nineteenth century. But putting a Chuckie Cheese there twentieth century was a great idea. And the founder was a guy named Nolan Bushnell. I've been lucky enough to know Nolan a little bit since I was a kid, literally. I think I first met him when I was four or five. But I had, as I worked as a curator at the the beginning of a line that included a number of very, very even got to play the game Space War against interesting, which was George Wilson's son, born uh, largely because the inventor of Space War, Steve Russell, was there, and he's a He's a shark. He's father. really Probably good. Probably not long after, but definitely <laughs> but, uh, in the same sort of What time my I think favorite thing about he that would end up is being the, the sheriff section for a while. Of San Jose also there was the jail for Santa Clara County for, for a period. more or less all ages. Movie theaters. There were four movie theater screens. Well, actually, by that point, there now, were... Now, Alfred By 1977, when Chuck Cheese opened, there were three screens at the 22, one and at I the 21, two at the 23, so six, seven, because I think the town and country was still uh, single two screen other, at that point. No, three other children. So you had seven gigantic movie screens. Uh, two of the ones at the... Well, three of the ones at the century. The Wilson so name. You had pretty common, a restaurant that appealed but Wilson to actually has a very large boy. association with had a number of different particularly Santa Clara. You had the Winchester House, and you had Bill Wilson, a former mayor of Santa Clara, founder of the Bill Wilson of Center, that one was of the dedicated sort to the of entertainment of the family groups here, while that also appealing with, to all the other uh, cases of homelessness that were out there, young uh, people, old people, all of them. Child emotional Chuck E. Cheese, problems, of course, all sorts of famous things. for Chuck E. Cheese, the animatronic rat, and his band of friends. 
in Santa Clara it was in the 1960s and the 70s. place you wanted to party. Young. Young and you knew if now, a kid so. was having their birthday party at Chuck E. Cheese, you had to be nice to that kid because you had There's to also Wilson's Bakery. When Nolan sold Classic, I've done Atari, an episode of which he also Silicon found Valley about it, to Warner Media, he eventually bought Wilson's back school. There's the so Chuck much Cheese Wilson stuff around, around here. And, it's a, yes, and actually, it went public. I did not realize this until recently. Wilson W. I. L. in which... No clue. But this is W-I-L-S-O-N, uh, They which seems started to, the to lose some story. money, and they were bought out by their rival called Showbiz Pizza. And this family definitely Nolan moved on to Santa Clara and how it evolved a dozen other years. projects. Uh, Androbot, a robot company, which is really cool, actually. thing called U-Wink, which there's an episode of Silicon Thank Valley Thank you for listening to Wide Unclassed. I am Chris Garcia. Idea. It was the idea, and this is fascinating sort of to me, connection or what about Chuck E. Cheese was for kids, Ewing was for adults. Johnny it was the integration of food and technology that was pretty intelligent, and I actually also really follow us on Twitter. Why when Chuck E. Cheese closed there, because the town and country died a slow death. Valley Fair, which was across the way, which had originally been a town and country style, when it evolved into a regular mall, like being on sort of in the 80s and onwards. Screamed to the it wind and maybe siphoned off a lot out. of the interest. Next As week, time went I'm on, going to focus Chuck e. Cheese's on financial woes the Century Theaters. But in general, the town and country passed away. on land that Sarah Winchester originally owned. It wasn't until the late 90s that were it was obviously going to be super important in the to soon. youth in Santa Clara. But I distinctly the remember the story of the preserve them that started mostly lost. with a walking tour through the house, fascinating, and then ended there, at the Chuck E. Cheese. A story of a sudden. Those are the rich Winchester. kids in my class. There but is that connection. An artist is made possible because who was eventually of the murdered house. by Scientology. The Winchester and House so much more is a legitimate into. international. So I hope you'll tune in next week. I guess, it might even be. Put it's an attraction. And when you it's look at things that open around it, they are. So I hope you'll stay tuned. Advantage of Thanks that for attraction. listening. And what eventually happened is they superseded the Winchester House as an attraction because of the lower point of entry. Not just cost, but time. Not just time, but effort. So, for example, the movie theaters, for 35, 40 years, they were the biggest attraction, much bigger than the Winchester House, because they provided a simple interactive point. All you had to do was go and watch a movie. Nothing simpler than that. But it was all made possible because of the attraction of the Winchester House. Also cheap land. Uh, it was Land was cheap over there at that point. But I miss Chuck E. Cheese a lot. A whole lot. And I wish it would come back as big as it was when I was a kid because it was huge. I love the front doors. I wrote a whole article about it, about my appreciation of the front door and the myth that, of course, no one went through the front door except for Mrs. Winchester and the person who installed it. Probably not true. Although, the front section of the house was closed in 1906, following the earthquake. And the front portion was not used, or lightly used. There's been some question about that. One specific thing that I remember hearing was in the late teens, they were doing walkthroughs to establish uh, sales. They were going to actually sell the house. I found an article about that in 1911, but I thought it was closer to 1914-1915, where there were potential buyers who did a walkthrough uh, to sort of see if they could buy the house and what they could do with it. But here's a fascinating thing, a thing that I love. 
that door with its inlays and its glass, that is not necessarily a grand opening door. Because if you look at other Queen Anne-style houses, particularly types with the double opening doors, you see something very much more dramatic. Here they're recessed. The, it's not a cupola, gables over it form sort of a darkened area off of the main porch. So it feels as if you are entering into not quite a cave, but a hall. And once you've done that, once you've gone into the door, then you're into the, like, the prime real estate of the house. But the door itself is beautiful. The woodwork is magnificent. Of course, the glass is fantastic. But the entire impact of the door is how it's just a door. It is a door into it. It's a door that when you pass through it, you are experiencing the house itself. But before it, you're sort of not engaging with the doors. 100% thing about the Victorian era, and particularly the highest end of Victorian houses, is the doors served as a marker. 100% one thing, giant thing about architecture, is everything in it serves as a marker of something. So if you think about, for example, gutters. Gutters are evidence of rainwater collection originally, but they still serve that purpose. But they're typically guiding water away from things like stairs and things or where things might freeze. They mark a consciousness of rain as an issue in the area. Same token, when you see... Here's a very good example, actually, of a building I'm currently looking at. When you see portions of sort of roof or wall that extend out, and in this case, they have the addresses of the buildings on them, they're actually doing two things. One, they're making a very obvious, very clear point. This is where you look to see the address. Because looking at it, you cannot miss them. The addresses are obviously going to be there. But they also serve another purpose. They limit the size of vehicle that can get through. So here at 15 feet, you are limited to the size of the vehicle that can make that passway. It can't be a tall truck. At one of the, across the street, it's more like 25, 30 feet. That's where you can get the big trucks. That's where the big trucks go. Everything serves as a marker, even if it's not necessarily a functional marker. And that, you see that at various places around the Winchester house. But the door... In a traditional Queen Anne, in a tradition, actually, very much so in traditional neoclassical, the door serves the purpose of an impact as you enter the house. And here, though it's a lovely door, it is meant to be a function of the house itself. In essence, the door is a part of the impact of the house, not necessarily a presentation to make an impact before you enter the house. And I love that. I adore that. That aspect of the Winchester House has always made my heart sing. From Wide Unclasped, Issue 2. Lindsay from Marketing. Lindsay started in the gift shop, but she left the glamour for the marketing team. The first media crew, a Japanese show that had imported an Irish psychic to visit the house. It was a pretty typical visit from a media team, and one of the guides took the camera people into the house, leaving Lindsay with the Irish medium alone in the ballroom. They were sitting there chatting about how she came across the gift, and then the light started flickering, 
and somewhere a door slammed shut. The medium began looking beyond Lindsay, started talking to someone. There's a man in overalls behind you, she said. Lindsay turned around and saw nothing, but the medium described the man. Overalls. A foreman. This is similar to the wheelbarrow man, but he wasn't seen with the wheelbarrow. The medium said she had not done any research on the house, but it's hard to know these stories if you weren't working in the space. Her other story was set during the first flashlight tour when she had an office that was in the house instead of in the gift shop area. The gift shop had been built in the 1970s. When they do the flashlight tours, those that are working in their offices have to keep their lights off, you know, to establish the mood. Now, in her office in that old part of the house, if it's the office I think it is, it's actually in an area that was a part of the original farmhouse footprint. And to get to the regular hallway used by guests on tours, you had to go down another hallway and beyond the wall-like velvet rope and through a doorway, down a small hallway, and then a door that led to her office. If this sounds like perhaps the scariest place in the entire world, then you're right. So Lindsay's alone in her office, in the house, and the only light being from her computer. She was working and suddenly the door between her office and the hallway started swinging. Not only was it swinging, but it was swinging at an irregular interval. She sat there watching it swing for ten minutes. For ten minutes. Of course, she was made of sterner stuff than I. And after those minutes, she yelled, Stop it! And the door slammed shut. And she finished up what she was doing and ran out of the room and out of the house. As Linda Wenzelberger said on the podcast, Why'd you wait ten minutes? One minute and I'd be out of there. The swinging door is a phenomenon in the house that I have heard from many people. And there's also a very famous video from an employee of the house of a chandelier swinging back and forth. I'll link it in the show notes. I've heard at least two other stories about doors swinging open and closed. One about one of those wall-like velvet ropes swinging. And there's apparently a photo from the 80s. I haven't seen it in years. But in the early days when I was researching online, I want to say it was on uh, Rec Ghosts or something like that on Usenet, there was a photo of one of the signs that used to hang that indicated tours and things sort of looking like it was in motion. Why would something like that swing? There are only two reasons why a door would open and close. Someone needs to go through it, or it's trying to be used to gather attention. Now, the idea that maybe it's a residual force or sensation that maybe that door led to, that little hallway in that door led to somewhere where Sarah Winchester would take a meal every day, that she was there, and then it would be brought to her so the door would be swinging, sort of reenacting that scenario. That possibility. Why would the chandelier be shaking, be swinging? Well, maybe it's the 1906 earthquake being relived. But both of these actually approach something that I find incredibly interesting, and is the idea of the house itself serving as a memory. That it is what happened in the house reliving itself, and maybe even trying to, in a way, communicate. This is one of my more woo-woo ideas, but it has some interesting basis. The house itself has a power. Even I felt it at times, and I am not a feeler. The power of the house may be its memory, a physical store of the activity of the house. And what I like about that is this idea that the house itself is influencing further generations, as if it doesn't want the past to be forgotten. It wants to bring forth all of those emotions. It's one of the reasons why the scent, the scent of chicken soup, I think, is smelled. It's because the house wants you to remember. 
that the soup was there at one point. Yes, I know this sounds stupid. The rationalist in all of us wants to be able to say, oh, it's just a house that was built by a woman who had some but not a lot of activity that she was just, you know, occasionally would abandon a portion to go to another one and a staircase would be left unfinished, a door would lead to a drop. An interesting thought. But what if the house is actually speaking to us? What if the house is not haunted, but the house is the haunting? The world is but a stage and the men and women merely players makes total sense in that scenario. There is something to the house itself as, an, for lack of a better word, entity. And I think that that plays out in these opening and closing of doors and so forth. I think that helps make the Winchester house more alive, a breathing thing. And perhaps because leading into it, it was imbued with some sort of power. Who knows? That that is why we see the people who were there so much. Wheelbarrow Man, Sarah Winchester, the strange amorphous figure that pops up here and there. With only a couple of exceptions, I've never heard of anyone saying there was a malevolent spirit at the Winchester house. This could be wrong. One thing I did hear, and certainly a malevolent spirit, is Zach Baggins, who apparently opened up a portal from one of the rooms to the Whaley house. Now, say what you want about magic of all sorts, or magic. That's just a stupid idea. That which we pretend often becomes what we are in reality. If he believed he was opening a portal, that's, that's so stupid. So stupid. It's not like you could just walk through with a whole bunch of sage smudging the place. Sort of have to let it ease off. There is a power in the Winchester house. I don't know what it is. Maybe someday we'll find out. But things like the door swinging, I think, show that quite plainly. I think it's important to remember that Sarah Winchester was not living out in the middle of nowhere. There were farms. She had neighbors. And, of course, there were the people in her employ who lived on her land. But one of the neighbors that I am fairly certain she had some contact with was Alfred B. Wilson. Now, when you look at the way that the properties were, they weren't touching. The southwestmost portion of her property is just a little bit, maybe 150 yards away from the northeastern corner of the Wilson property. And Alfred B. Wilson was, was a really fascinating guy. He was the, he was involved with the California Fruit Canners Association for 30 years, and he had only come to California in 1887. This is the year after Sarah purchased Yonata Villa. Their interests were certainly aligned. Of course, Sarah had her own fruit drying operation, but a lot of her fruit would have had to have gone for canning. So it would make sense that Alfred Wilson would be someone she would have interacted with. How closely? Who knows? And of course, it could have gone through Lieb, it could have gone through her secretary, it could have gone through Marion. Any number of people could have actually been the ones who interacted with him. But it seems likely that someone at that level in the California Fruit Canners Association would have wanted to deal with the actual owner of the land that was providing fruit. It makes so much sense. And sadly, I haven't been able to find anyone who's holding old 19th century 
early 20th century records from the California Fruit Canning Association. It's got to be out there somewhere, I hope. Wilson was the beginning of a line that included a number of very, very key people. The most interesting is probably George Wilson, his son, born, I believe he came to California after his father, probably not long after, but definitely in the same sort of time frame, I think 1889. He would end up being the sheriff for a while. He also was the jailer for Santa Clara County for a period. Now, Alfred B. Wilson lived until 1939, and I believe his son lived until 1954. Uh, He had two other, no, three other children. I think they were all daughters. The Wilson name is pretty common, but Wilson actually has a very large association with particularly Santa Clara. Bill Wilson, a former mayor of Santa Clara, founder of the Bill Wilson Center, one of the sort of important groups here that deals with a case of homelessness, uh, child emotional problems, all sorts of things, founded by Bill Wilson, who was one of the real keys in Santa Clara in the 1960s and 70s. Died very young, younger than I am right now, sadly. There's also Wilson's Bakery. Classic. I've done an episode of Silicon Valley about it. There's also Wilson School. There's so much Wilson stuff around here. And it's, yes, a common name, but also there is Wilson, W-I-L-S-S-O-N, but this is W-I-L-S-O-N, which seems to be the most popular spelling. And this family definitely influenced Santa Clara and how it evolved through the years. Thank you for listening to Wide Unclasped. I am Chris Garcia. If you've got any sort of connection or stories about the Winchester House, please feel free to drop me a line. JohnnyEponymous at gmail.com. It's in the show notes. Also, follow us on Twitter, Wide Unclasped, that's a W-I-D-E-U-N-C-L-A-S-P-D, that's on the Twitters. Or, you can just scream to the wind and maybe I'll hear it, I don't know. Next week, I'm going to focus on the Century Theaters, built on land that Sarah Winchester originally owned. The three theaters were super important to youth in Santa Clara. The story of the fight to preserve them, which ultimately mostly lost, is fascinating. There's a story of a sighting of Sarah Winchester. There is an artist who was eventually murdered by Scientology. And so much more to go into. So I hope you'll tune in next week. It might even be early the week after. It's a big story. So I hope you'll stay tuned. Thanks for listening to Wide Unclassed.